and welcome to episode 61 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? As with last week, this is a Christmas mini-sode because I'm currently in Ireland and at this point, Dan is also, also in, in Ireland. Ireland. This ah. is live from Ireland. No, it's not live. It's really not live from Ireland. If we tried to record an episode in Ireland, my mum's internet would not be able to upload no, the episode. 100%. 100%. She pretty much still has dialed up. So there's not going to be any Patreons, not going to be any film review. We're just going to crack on with two stunning ghost stories today. Oh, I thought we were going to do like the happy things like we did in the Patreon episode. No. Mm. We're not. Sorry, babe. Okay. Our first story comes from Randy. Are you ready? Yes. Oh, before we start, I hope everybody had a really nice Christmas. Yeah. Um, I hope you all had a gorgeous time, whether you celebrate Christmas or not. I just hope you're keeping well and um, are having a nice time in general. And I second everything Emma just said. Story number one comes from Randy. My mom, who was blind since 2001, suddenly passed away in August of last year. 2018. It's been almost exactly a year. We were incredibly close the last few years and I could feel my heart break when my brother had called me saying no one had heard from her in a couple of days. And it was not good. She had just come back from a really exciting vacation and we were supposed to see Paul McCartney at the end of the month. It was a complete shock. She was incredibly independent and lived on her own. My brother and I took her places when she needed to go somewhere, but she made her own meals, took care of her home, taught herself how to play the ukulele, and was working on teaching herself the bongos. When she watched TV, she liked to watch a descriptive video channel that was available on one of our cable services. This channel played regular shows, but had voiceovers describing what was happening in a scene. You don't actually realise how many scenes with no talking there are in one show until you can't see what's happening. This is an important part of the story. Since my mom passed, both my aunts and brother have experienced lights flickering. Both aunts also had items that had stopped working, all of a sudden, and then start working again. One aunt had a light that hadn't worked for a long time, and she always intended to change the light bulb, never doing so. And suddenly it started working. The other had a clock that stopped ticking years ago that started up. I was wondering why it hadn't happened to me, or why I hadn't noticed. I told Erica, my cousin, about the dream I had on the day that we figured my mom had passed away. I was napping in the afternoon and dreamt about the cupboard that is above our stairs. I watched the latch slowly open and when the door opened, I could feel my whole body vibrate. I've never had that before. And I jolted awake, like an electric shock just zapped through me. It was a weird feeling. I'm not sure if it's actually related to anything or not, but we do believe that is the day she died. The day of my mom's memorial, we went back home and my husband's family, who had come, his aunt asked me about what happened to my mum. And as I was explaining it, I swear the lights had flickered. That was the first time I'd noticed the lights flickering at all since I'd been back in this house. My husband is an electrician and all of our outlets and lights are in tip-top shape. I kind of ignored it. A few days later, I was watching something on Amazon Prime. Not sponsored. <laughs> I'd paused it to take the dogs out. I came back in and went on my computer to check an email, as one does because they can't stick to one thing, and I heard the show start back up again. I went into the living room and paused it, with the recording on my cable box. When the show is paused for too long, it will start on its own. I assumed Amazon Prime Video did the same thing. I paused it again and was on my computer again for over half an hour well over the amount of time that I was away from it the first time. It did not unpause on its own, 
The thing that I considered to be big, though, happened a week or so after her memorial. My husband and I were watching a show that was recorded on the cable box. I paused it to take the dogs out. When we came back, I tried to press play to start the show. I had pressed it a couple of times and it was not playing. The show we were watching then exited and the channel switched to the descriptive video channel. I know now that it is a simple channel to go to, 888. However, I've never accidentally gone to this channel before and prior to this event, I only knew it existed but had no clue what channel it was. Even if I hit the wrong button near the play button, it wouldn't have brought me to 888. I literally tried to repeat the mistake and couldn't. My thumb would face being stretched on the remote differently than where the play was. The numbers also didn't appear on screen like they normally do when you enter any numbers to change channels. I truly feel that it was too much of a coincidence to not have been her telling me that she is here and she is okay. Spooky but comforting. She's shown up in my dreams a lot and actually now her and my dad show up together in my dreams too. He passed away eight years ago now and he used to appear in my dreams alone. At least they're together again, if only in my dreams. This is a story that happened when I was about 15, so 18 years ago. I don't remember all the details because I'm an old lady now, <laughs> but I remember the main parts. We had a plush Elmo toy that had a little button on its belly that when pressed played a tune. I'm not even sure where it came from. It may have been my nephew's. The toy becomes important later. I had four friends over for a Halloween party at my home. We watched Halloween themed movies, ate snacks, etc. We set up two candles on the coffee table in the living room. The living room is approximately 500 square feet and the candles really only lit up the coffee table on which we placed the Ouija board in between two candles. It was just a cheap Ouija board game I got as a gift. The planchette was cheap plastic with a little bit of felt at the bottom of the feet. As a group, we all placed our hands on the planchette. Nothing happened. 20 minutes and nothing happened. Three of my friends decided the Ouija board was boring and left to go to another room to continue to watch scary movies. Myself and my friend, I didn't get his permission to this, so we can name him Phil, stayed. We both put our hands on the planchette, took a deep breath and asked again if there was anyone that wanted to contact us. It had only been a few seconds, but the flame from one of the candles got a little bigger and brighter. We asked who was with us and it spelled out the word boy. We asked how he died and he said drowned. We asked how and it said car and then bridge. It had been quite a long time since this experience, so I unfortunately don't remember certain specifics like the age of the boy, the year he died and his name. But of course, I do remember we asked those specific questions. Out of nowhere, the boy stopped answering and the candles dimmed back to normal. Both of us were shocked. Either of us could have been moving the planchette, but neither of us was capable of manipulating the flames of cheap candles I bought at the dollar store. It was a good solid minute of us trying to get more responses when I adjusted the way I was sitting. I accidentally leaned on the Elmo. Didn't even realise that toy was anywhere near me. My knee must have hit the button. The music started playing and right away the candle flame expanded, much taller than it was before. And the entire room was lit. I could see every corner of the room just as if someone had turned the living room light on, just amazingly bright. We said his name and asked if he was back. It said yes. Then we asked if he liked the music and it said yes. After that answer, the candles returned to a normal flame size and the room went dim again. 
Phil and I looked at each other, completely astonished at the events that just took place. Our other friends didn't believe our excited explanations of what had happened. It's been at least 18 years, and he and I still remember what we experienced. Both of us also swear that we weren't moving the planchette. It seemed to glide so effortlessly across the board. I don't think I said goodbye either, which really creeps me out. I didn't know the rules because the internet didn't exist when I was a kid. Didn't know that not saying goodbye could be opening a doorway to the dead. You know, if you believe in that. I've always been a little uneasy when I'm alone in the house. I bought it from my mum after my dad had passed away and I'm still here. I'm not necessarily scared, I just always feel like there's something unusual. To be honest, I felt that before my Ouija board experience, so I can't say anything stayed from that night. I also have no idea where the Elmo toy ended up. I never saw it again after that night. A couple of years ago I was telling this story to a co-worker who had asked about paranormal experiences. I didn't know back then that malevolent spirits or demons sometimes pretended to be little children. I mean, how old was Zach Bagans at the time? <laughs> He's probably where I learned that little tidbit from. <laughs> Her phone was sitting in front of us on the table. No one was touching it or was near to it. Right when I mentioned the malevolent spirit playing tricks as kids, her phone opened the voice activation screen. She didn't even know her phone had that feature, since she'd just got it the day prior. That could have been quite the coincidence, or perhaps something has been with me this entire time. Who knows? Mm-mm. Freaky. That is freaky, I mean, it's it? the, bit about his, the bit about the mum was really nice. I, I'm really sorry that you lost your mum. That must be just so traumatising. I might actually start crying even thinking about it. Oh my God, get your stuff together, Emma. So I'm sorry that you lost your mum, but it is lovely to think that they yeah. can leave us those messages. Yeah. And like it going to that particular channel as well is really like poignant, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like that's massive. Yeah. That's major. And and to dream about them as well, like in a lot of cultures, people believe that when you dream about dead people in your dreams, it's a visitation. And I dream about dead people all of the time. And in my dreams, I know they're dead and I talk to them about being dead and whatever. One of the dreams that I had, I'm going to say this on the podcast because my mum doesn't listen, so it's okay. One of the dreams that I had after my Nana died was that I knew she was dead, but she crawled out of her fucking coffin like a zombie. And it was just me and her in her sitting room. And it absolutely traumatised me. Was that around the same time you had the dream about the angry beaver? No, the <laughs> angry beaver, the uh, angry otter. otter it was it. an otter outside yeah. the house that was the spirit of my yeah. nana. Yeah. No, that was a couple of weeks okay. later. I mean, that fucking traumatized <laughs> me. So at least you've got like you've got nice dreams about your yeah. about your mum. That is something. Um, and the whole Ouija board thing is just I fundamentally just don't believe in it, but I still wouldn't mess with it. No. Nope. So I don't know what that means. Maybe I nope. do believe in it a little bit. My dad has done that job for me now. Yeah, not where that he was I, like, not that no, I ever Emma. would have, not that I ever would have, but he was just like, no, Emma, you better not get a Ouija board in this house. And I was like, oh god, okay, sorry, Steve. We've got Thanks, another, <laughs> we've got another story for you. Okay, from Taylor. Hi, Emma, Dan, and Her Majesty the Queen, Tiny Bims. Noted. <laughs> I have a story that I think you will really enjoy. This isn't actually my story, but of my high school history teacher, Mister Hermansky, that he claims is one hundred percent true. I went to high school in Chandler, Arizona. Every year around Halloween, all of the junior year students, 11th grade, would get to skip their history class and gather into a dark classroom to hear Mr. Hermansky tell the story. It's a pretty famous story in my hometown. I remember when my brother, who's seven years older than me, heard the story and came home and retold it to me. 
It scared the crap out of 10 year old me and I was so excited to hear it from Mr. Hermansky himself when I was old enough. I've since shared this with all of my scary story loving friends and hope that you will enjoy it as well. It's kind of long, but here's the transcript below. I've also included the link to audio a student recorded one year of Mr. Her Hermansky telling it himself. He's a great storyteller and it definitely ups the spook factor if you've got time to listen to it. And I'll leave the link to that in the description of this episode. So Lovely. it's a YouTube link. By all means, go and listen to it. This happened when I first started teaching in El Paso, Texas, where I worked at Walter Clark Middle School. There was a young lady named Kimberly in my classroom. She was very quiet, a very shy girl, and she was in my class for about two months when she disappeared. We didn't know what happened to her. We contacted this counsellor and said that we hadn't seen her in about a week. The counsellor said they had tried to contact her parents and couldn't get a hold of them, and were assuming that they had simply moved away, and that was all that could be done. I guess it was about a month and a half later I was teaching and the door opened, and I could tell by my student's face that something was really wrong. I turned around, and you know it, Kimberly was not a very big girl to begin with and now she looked really bad. She had a long white dress on and it was dirty. Her fingernails were yellow. She looked starved and her eyes were sunken into her head. Her hair, which was usually long and pretty, was matted and dirty. I turned to her and asked, Kimberly, what's wrong? And she just stared right through me. I repeated myself, Kimberly, what is wrong? She looked down at her hand and she started to rub it and said, Poor Kimberly. Poor Kimberly. Poor Kimberly. I said, Kimberly, what has happened to you? But she just kept rubbing her hand. So I called the office to get someone to watch my class while I took Kimberly to the nurse. When I got there, the nurse was shocked and said, Oh my God, who is this? What happened to her? I said, This is Kimberly. I have no idea. She showed up to my class this way. And the nurse immediately called 911 for the police and an ambulance. Now, at Walter Clark Middle School, each student was allowed to pick a mentor, and Kimberly had picked me. So when the police officer showed up, I was one of the main people to talk to him. His name was Johnny Guerrero. Johnny is still a police officer in El Paso, and because of this incident we became friends, and are still friends. Now a note about Johnny. He's a very tough man. He's been a cop for years. And while I don't believe in ghosts, Johnny does. He believes in everything. So as Johnny and I are talking, we agree that Kimberly needs to go to the hospital first thing, and second, we needs to get her parents. So at the hospital, they find she's very malnourished, in a state of shock, and they believe that she is insane. And because she is insane, they take her to Alpine, Texas, where there is a facility to help people with severe mental health issues. But a week later, Johnny calls and invites me to come with him when he goes to Kimberly's house. She lived in a little town right outside El Paso called Fabens. Fabens is an old, old town that is mostly abandoned. Very few people live there anymore. We get to Kimberly's house, a three-story red brick narrow house, and to get to the door we have to walk up these old crumbling steps. Johnny's already looking spooked. But when we get to the door and he goes to open it and it swings open, we walk in, and the first thing I noticed is the smell. It smelled dusty, like no one had lived there for a very long time, and it was very dark in there. When you walk in, 
There is a great big living room and a set of stairs that lead to the second and third floors. So we go up the stairs and on the second floor was her parents' room. Nothing had been disturbed. The bed was neatly made. Clothes were hung in the closet. We go to Kimberly's room on the third floor. The only evidence that someone had been in there was the bed. The blankets were folded back, but other than that, it was a neat room. So we finally went back down to the first floor. Passing the living room, we go through the hallway into the kitchen. And there was a funny smell in there. While Johnny is looking around for evidence of some kind, for some weird reason, the refrigerator caught my attention. I went over to the fridge, opened the door, and the smell almost knocked me down. It was terrible. But I swung the door open, and inside of the fridge, nailed to the door, was a dog. Someone had cut it open, taken all its organs out, and stuck it inside the fridge to rot. With that discovery, Johnny called Animal Control. They sent a man down to collect the carcass. As the animal control officer was leaving, Johnny and I walked him out and Johnny told him to keep him posted on the necropsy, an autopsy for animals. The animal control officer leaves and Johnny and I head back to El Paso. A few days pass and I get a call from Johnny. I need to talk to Kimberly and they want you to come, he says. Well, she's at Alpine, that's a hundred mile drive, I say. Let's go Saturday. So Saturday rolls around and Johnny and I head to Alpine. Johnny normally, a relatively talkative guy, was silent for a long time. Before he said he'd gotten the report back on the dog. Whoever, whatever, had cut it open, had used two fine razor-like objects, almost like surgical tools, and the tongue was cut out. But the really weird part was the hair found in the dog's chest cavity. Uh, Johnny, I said, it was a dog? Dogs have hair. Not long black brown hair he said not hair that comes from a primate what i shouted what primates you mean like a gorilla or something it was not like those kind of animals just wander around texas johnny let me stew over this for a few minutes while he took a radio call when he finished his face looked grim officers at kimberly's house had discovered two bodies shadowly buried in the backyard they were badly decomposed but using dental records, the officers were able to discover that the bodies were Kimberly's mom and dad. Well, we get to the mental institution and the director meets with us. He tells us that Kimberly isn't doing all that well today. They have cameras in every room to monitor patients and Kimberly is pacing the room talking to herself. So the staff bring her into the conference room and Kimberly locks eyes with me and for a second I think she might smile. She doesn't. She sits and I ask her, Kimberly, honey, how are you doing? She just stared. So I said, Kimberly, where's your mom and dad? She just stared. I said, Kimberly, where's your dog? And she looked up. She looked at me, then at Johnny, and then back at me. I said, honey, Kimberly, do you know your dog is dead? She looked at her hand, then around the room, and she whispered, They live in the walls. What, honey? I asked. They live in the walls. What live in the walls, Kimberly? What do you mean? I said. But she just looked around, rested her head on the table and rubbed her hand. She didn't talk anymore. She wouldn't respond to us. 
She wouldn't say anything. So they took her back to her room and Johnny and I headed back to El Paso. Well, Johnny gives me a call a couple of days later. It turns out that the same type of hair that was found in the dog was also found in Kimberly's parents' corpses. The flesh was sliced with razor precision from their bones and the bones had been chewed on. The bones had been gnawed on with similar razor-sharp instruments. You're not going to like this, but I have to go and arrest Kimberly, Johnny told me. I don't think she did it, but her parents are dead, her dog is dead, and she lived in that house. She's the only suspect I have right now. So we go back to Alpine. As we turn into the facility, there are cars from all the law enforcement agencies, border patrol, there's a helicopter, and when we walk in, the director pulls us into his office. It seems that when they went to get Kimberly, she wasn't in her room. She had vanished, and they were searching for her. Back at El Paso, Johnny invited me back to Kimberly's house with a couple more officers. They were going to do something that at the time was new technology, blacklight. They were going to see if there was blood or anything in her house. We got up to the house and start on the third floor, in Kimberly's room, and there's nothing. So we head down to her parents' room. There was a little blood on the sink, but barely a drop. Nothing else. We head to the first floor, and as we walk down the hall, the black light shone into the kitchen. The kitchen was glowing bright purple. Blood had been splattered, smeared, and spilled everywhere in that room. Even the ceiling had blood on it. The officers then turned off the black light, turning on the normal lights, and began to collect parts of the wood floor, the walls, the rugs, collecting evidence from everything they could. From just the kitchen, they gathered human blood, animal blood, and fragments of bone. They even found a couple of fingernails embedded into the brick walls, where someone had tried to claw their way out of the kitchen. It wasn't that surprising, given how much the kitchen had glowed in the black light. One thing was surprising, however. It became clear that the story of what happened was spreading fast, and Johnny believed the house would soon be torn down. That made sense. Too many people were trying to tour the old house, believing that some middle school girl had gone crazy and killed her parents. But the more I thought about it, the more surprising it was to me that the air conditioning vents had been precisely clean. The house was old, from the late 1800s. Of course it had been remodelled to include the air vents for the swamp cooler type AC. Well, after a bit of discussion, Johnny and I decide someone needed to take a look at the vent. Johnny being something of a chicken had no intention of going up into those vents, so a couple of other officers built a scaffold, took out the vent and started crawling around. We could hear them, and I told Johnny, You know what? Let's go take a look. I'm not going, Johnny said. Well, I'm going, I said. I'm not staying down here by myself, Johnny said. If you're going, I'm going too. Johnny hands me his little pen light and turns on his mag light. We crawl up the scaffolding and Johnny goes left where one officer went and I go right, following the other officer. You could see about halfway down the vent, there was a turn off to the right. But halfway there, my flashlight went out. So I start to go backward because I could see nothing up there. It was dark. But I notice that right where the corner is, there is a slight glow. Wondering what it is, I start crawling towards the glow. The glow is coming from another little offshoot of the vents. As I crawl closer, I could see a pair of feet. And the feet move. Curiosity got the better of me. I had to find out who was up there. So I look and look and look. 
and sitting there was Kimberly. She had a candle in her hands, which was the glow I saw, and she had this evil look in her eyes. There was blood on her fingers, blood on her mouth, and I was shocked. I said, Kimberly? And she looked around her, and she looked at me and said, Shh, they're here. I said, who's here? The ones that live in the walls. No, honey, I said, no one's here. There's no one here. They're here. Shh, listen. I couldn't hear anything, so I said, Come on, Kimberly, we need to get out of here. We just need to get you out of here. She follows me out, and I holler up at the others. They come down, and Johnny said, What the hell just happened? I explained what happened, how I saw her, and we all just stood there for a minute. Johnny wanted to take her in, but I didn't want her to be nervous or freak out with us, so I rode to the station with them, with Kimberly, to have her booked for murder. They set up a trial, and she's going to go to jail. And if there's any hope for her, she's going to need a really good lawyer. Now, I'd taken a lot of history classes just because I enjoy the history of the Southwest. And the town of Fabens has a colourful history. One story said that the priests of an old mission in Fabens had been executed because supposedly they were disemboweling some of the local people in the area. And I mentioned it to Johnny in a somewhat offhand manner. But he looked interested and asked me if I could find the book I'd read about it and bring it in. In the book, there was also an old 1600s map of Fabens. Well... Johnny took my map and a current map of Fabens and blew them up to the same size and then he circled something on the new map. What is that? I asked. That, he said, is Kimberly's house. Then he took the old map and placed it over the current one. He found the location of the old mission and using a pen punched a hole through both maps. When he took the map away, there was a hole right where Kimberly's house stood. Johnny said, That mission stood exactly where Kimberly's house stands right now. Okay, I said, and remember, I'm a sceptic, but even I had to admit, something's going on in that house. It isn't Kimberly's doing. Johnny shook his head. Well, there's no way I can get evidence to prove that. I know, I said, but there is something going on here. We mulled over the issue until Johnny remembered that there is a sergeant who took courses to deal with the occult issues that sometimes come up in police work. Johnny spoke to him, and after about a week, he showed up at my school at the end of class and he didn't look happy. Class ends, the students leave, and Johnny and I went outside to talk. The sergeant, it turned out, wanted to go to the house and spend the night there. And after some convincing, Johnny agreed to stay with this sergeant and I in the house. So the three of us go to the house, roll out our sleeping bags and listen to the house settle. We were up playing cards and talking until about two in the morning when we finally got tired and fell asleep. About an hour later, I woke up to see the sergeant sitting up. What's up, I asked. He put a finger to his lips and said, listen. I couldn't really hear anything, but he said, listen, it's upstairs. He gets up and starts to head up the stairs, telling me to stay put. He goes up the stairs and I can hear him walking around, but it was quiet. And I heard him going up from second to third floor. And it was so quiet, I fell back asleep. In the morning, as it's getting light out, I wake up and the sergeant isn't there. I woke Johnny up and explained that the sergeant woke up in the middle of the night and now he isn't here. He wasn't anywhere. No one has ever heard from him again. 
What? And he left behind a wife and two kids. He was even featured on Unsolved Mysteries, but they still haven't found him. After this, Johnny and I were talking to Kimberly's lawyer, trying to explain that something is happening at the house. The lawyer listened and then asked if there was any way the cameras could be set up inside the house. Johnny said that yes, they could, but he didn't think it would do much good. I said, put Kimberly back in the house too. Whatever is happening is there and it's happening to her. So with some convincing, the police department put cameras up in the house, covering every angle they could think of. We get Kimberly and driver in Johnny's patrol car, Stefavins, and we get out and I tell her she's home. She didn't say anything, but she walked up the stairs, stood on the porch, looked at the door and it opened. A couple of days passed and Johnny and his wife come over to my house for dinner and we talk about what was happening at the house. Not much as it turned out. Kimberly would walk around, eat a little and all the time her lips were moving. The surveillance team watched her, took notes, but nothing had happened. Johnny and I decided to take over for the guys who were watching for a while and let them get something to eat and just kind of watch the screens. So we get in the surveillance van and we are just watching the monitors and it's about midnight. In front of the screen on a little desk is a notebook where the police officers can record when anything happens. Johnny starts flipping through it and most of the notes are that Kimberly got up, ate, walked around, etc. Then he mentions something about a dog. What dog? I asked. Not just the dog says here that it walked around, said Johnny. Johnny, the dog's dead, I said. Well, Johnny said there's a new dog that's living under her bed. It comes out from under her there. I said, read it to me. Johnny flips back and reads, Dog licks Kimberly's hand. Well, the dog is dead. So Johnny rewinds the tape to the timestamp and watches the tape. Sure enough, Kimberly walks into her room, lays back on the bed with her hand hanging off the side. The dog comes out from under the bed and licks her hand. The dog goes back under the bed and Kimberly crosses her hand over her chest and falls asleep. See, Johnny said, there's the dog. No, that's not a dog. Can you rewind and pause it when the dog shows up? Sure, says Johnny. He rewinds and pauses the tape when the dog is there. Look, I said. Look at the eyes on that dog. That is not a normal dog. The eyes looked like human eyes. Most dogs, you can barely see the whites of their eyes, but this dog, it looks like a person's eyes. Then, when we play the tape again, the tongue was this long, skinny serpent tongue that wrapped around Kimberly's hand and then was gone. And as we were talking about how weird this dog was, from the corner of my eye, I saw some movement on one of the screens. Kimberly was standing up. She walked to the corner of the room and stared straight into the camera. She stood there, looking at the camera for several seconds, then suddenly, the camera froze. Watch the other cameras, Johnny said, make sure she hasn't left the room. I was, and she hadn't left her room, and all the while Johnny was trying to fix the camera. Bam! All of a sudden the van just rocks about two feet as though something had hit it. Johnny tells me to keep an eye on the monitors while he goes outside to see what hit the van. I watch the screens, and in my periphery I see Johnny looking at me, except he isn't looking at me. He's looking right past me, looking to the other side and I see that Kimberly is in the van. She was right next to me. 
Her eyes were glowing red, her hands were like claws and she was hissing. Why are you watching me? She hissed and she launched herself at me. I put my hands up to ward her off and she bit right into my hand. She had superhuman strength because Johnny and I could not get her onto the ground. She was hissing and growling and making these guttural noises that I had never heard come from a human before. Finally, we were able to tie our hands together, open the van door and get her onto the ground. The whole time Kimberly was hissing and writhing and growling. Johnny and I look at the doors and all of them were locked. In fact, we'd had to unlock the doors to get her out of the van. She hadn't been caught in any of the cameras in any of the rooms and I still cannot explain how she got into the van. Johnny called for a squad car to come and get her and they, they took her away. And I went to the hospital and had surgery on my hand. And it's clear that Kimberly is going to jail. The house will be destroyed. All the evidence indicates that Kimberly killed her parents. About a month into the legal proceedings, I know it is just a matter of time before I have to testify to the court. But I cannot forget about what was under Kimberly's bed. So I call Johnny up and I ask him when the house will be raised. He told me it will be about a week later. Johnny, I asked him, what was under her bed? I don't know and I don't care. Well, I did finally convince Johnny to go to the house with me. We went on the Sunday before it was due to be demolished. Walking inside, the house still smelled burnt and musty. We walked into Kimberly's bedroom and Johnny lit the bed and while I look under it, nothing. I had Johnny pull the bed out and on the wooden floor underneath was a long hair. The same kind of hair that was found in the dog and in Kimberly's parents. We look around and realise that one of the walls looks strange. The mortar in between the bricks was loose. So loose in fact that you could pull the bricks out. We pulled them out and there were so many that it created a hole large enough to crawl through. And behind the hole was a walkway. And on the floor of the walkway was a fancy gold-plated ballpoint pen with El Paso Police Department and the sergeant's name on it. Johnny gave me his flashlight and I crawled into the little walkway. It was very damp and cold in the little passageway and we went down it until it turned right. And just after it turned right, it ran into the chimney. Next to the chimney were a set of stairs leading to the second and first floors. What was strange was that it went down even further. It went down so far that we threw a quarter down there and we never heard it hit. It seemed to go on forever. We crawled back up and I called up a buddy of mine who spent a lot of his time caving. He said sure he'd meet us up and help us out. And as he was getting his gear together I explained what was happening in the house. He scoffed at me and we all headed back to the entrance of this cavern. So we started to lower him down and every 50 feet the rope was a different colour. He kept calling back to us how weird and different this cave was, how cool it seemed and also that it was difficult to see because it was really smoky. And at about 250 feet, we stopped lowering him and we wait. We wait and we wait. And an hour goes by. Something's wrong, Johnny said. Pull him up. So I tried to pull him up and the rope is light. He's not on the rope. So we start cranking the rope up as fast as we can. The whole time we're yelling to him. But when we get to the end of the rope, it's wet. The harness he was wearing is gone. Johnny turns out with his flashlight and the rope is wet because it was covered in blood. 
Of course, at this point, Johnny calls the police department. The fire department showed up and the decision was made to remove the house and see if the cabin could be explored. Search and rescue came with a crew and they went down into this natural cave. They never found a body, never found a harness. What they did discover was that the cave was large and about as wide and long as a football field. There were also many smaller caves that connected in a seemingly endless web. They couldn't explore those caves because each cave got smaller and smaller. Each time the team would come back up, they were covered in a super fine ash. Eventually, the city of Fabens elected to seal the cave, covering it with concrete and a chain link fence surrounding it topped with razor wire. I wish I could say this is where the story ended. Kimberly did go on trial, although the trial was moved out of El Paso because no one could have been on that jury. It was moved to Arizona. Kimberly was found guilty and sent to a women's prison. It was at that time that I moved to Arizona and I'd been living there for a year and a half. Johnny and I kept in touch, mostly just mundane stuff, but also talked about how weird the whole Kimberly deal was. At one point he was heading to LA with his kids on a vacation so he stopped by. He and his family stayed with us for a few days on their way and the first night we were all at dinner and he said, so did you hear about Kimberly? What? No, don't even start, I said. No, really, said Johnny. Did you hear about what happened? No. What happened? Kimberly had been in solitary confinement in the prison. She was a year into her sentence when she requested a cellmate. She'd been doing so well that her request was granted. The morning after her cellmate had been moved in with her, the guards noticed that there was only one person in the cell. They opened the cell, and on the bottom bunk was Kimberly's cellmate facing the wall. When they turned her over, it was clear something had used two fine razor-sharp objects to disembowel this woman. Her tongue was nearly surgically removed, and in her body cavity they found a single long hair. In the corner of the cell was a hole where someone had from the outside removed a brick. They were able to follow it as far as their sewer line and that was the last time anyone has ever seen or heard from Kimberly. About two weeks later, Johnny was back in El Paso. I was at home in Arizona. I picked up the phone. This was back when everyone had a landline, and there was somebody on the line. I could hear kind of a shh noise. Hello? Who's there? Do you believe? I thought it was some religious caller, and I said, yes, I believe. I'm watching you. What? I said. I thought, well, fine, one of my students made a prank call. So I called the operator to find out who had just called me. They said there was no record of a call and asked if the phone had rang. Well, no, it didn't, I told them. Well, they told me that I did not get a call. But one month later, I'm at home and the phone rings. My wife answered and called out to me. It's for you. Who is it? Well, it's one of your students, some girl with a question, she said. So I picked up the receiver Hello? Shh. Who is it? I said. Shh. Who is this? I'm watching you. You're watching me, I asked. How can you be watching me? I'm in the walls. Look at the vents. In the vents you'll see eyes. No. I hung up so fast that my wife looked at me. What is it? Uh, nothing, I said. Then why do you look like you've seen a ghost? 
No reason, I said. Maybe I don't feel so good. About a week passed, and I came home from work, and she was sitting on the couch, not moving, barely breathing, waiting for me. I barely walked into the door when she said, You told a story today. It wasn't a question. She took me upstairs to our room, and the air vent was hanging open. She had heard a noise, went upstairs to check it, and found the vent hanging off the wall. It fell off. It's okay, I said. I'll put it back up. No, she said, nearly sobbing, because I went into the bathroom, and when I looked in the mirror, I swear I could see the reflection of eyes in the vent in there. I tried to calm her down. I told her she was imagining it, and she just shook her head and begged me to stop telling the story. And that's when the phone rang. My wife, understandably, wouldn't answer it, so I did. Who is this, I said, and what do you want? You better believe. You better believe because we're in the walls. Mr. Hermansky usually added a few anecdotes about things that have happened on days that he's told the Kimberly story. According to him, talking about her, or even just thinking about her, can cause things to happen. He said that his wife tells him to stop begging the story because creepy things always happen when he tells it, like him sleep-talking in an unknown language. He said things also happen around the school, like one morning he walked into his classroom to find someone sitting there, but when he turned on the lights, no one was there. Mm. He would also show us the scar where Kimberly bit his hand. I never personally experienced anything. But on the day he told the class my story, the vent cover in the girls' bathroom, which is a good nine or ten feet high off the wall, inexplicably fell off. So now, as an adult reading this story, I can definitely see some plot holes. If the story really is true, I'm sure Mr. Hermansky gave it some embellishment to make it a little more entertaining. But it still gives me the heebie-jeebies every time I think about it. I was finishing typing this up around 10pm, and no joke, somebody knocked on my apartment window, which has never happened before, and I just about shit myself. I'm sure it was one, one poor schmuck that was locked out of the building, but it also could have been Kimberly, saying, what's up? So I had to close my computer and finish this off in the daylight. No, 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 no. What no, a no, 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 story, no, no, right? No, it's a great story. I mean, so much for for this being a mini-sode. It's like yep. 40 minutes long, yeah. but it's such a good story. It's a really good story. I'm sure it's fact-checkable. I'm sure it's fact-checkable. I'm sure this is a secondary school teacher mm. who does this every year yep. to scare, scare yep. the kids. Yep. And But yep. I love it. It's such a great story. Yep. Like, yeah. What and the I'm, fuck I'm, is it? There probably was a girl called Kimberly that killed her parents, to be fair. Somewhere in the world, yeah, yeah. I imagine so. Oh man, that guy is a genius as well. Because the fact that it's gone down in law through generations of kids that he's taught. Yeah, and now it's on YouTube. Yeah, where somebody YouTube. has recorded him telling the story. But I'll put the link in the description, like I said. Mm. But I think it's incredible. Creepy. I think it is a man telling the story to scare kids. Yeah. But fuck me, that story gave me the heebie-jeebies. Good story. I felt that I felt that feeling of wanting to pull my legs up from under the table because mm. I thought she was gonna like grab me under the table. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. And um if you enjoyed this week's episode <laughs> you can find us on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Real Life Ghost Stories. That's it, isn't it? That's my Instagram handle. Yeah. At Real Life Ghost Stories. You can find Dan on Instagram. At fifty P Movie Club. You can find us on Twitter. At Real Ghost Pod. You can find us on Facebook, 
We have a Facebook page called Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast. Give it a little like. We have a super group on Facebook or LGS super group. And you can give, you can join that. And the answer to the question is Emma and Dan. You can send us in your story to Podcast at gmail.com. Why are you making that face? So just yawn. I was trying not to yawn down the mic. And you can Patreon. oh support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for $5 a month or $2 a month you can get some extra creepy content that's it and on that note we'll see you next time bye avoid people who came in <laughs>